if you hit a dead end in a maze, that's not a wasted knowledge. You know, you know that that is not the way out of the maze. So you learn through failure and you learn through the dead ends sometimes. And that's that's part of Nora's journey. She has to sort of find her way out of the maze that she's sort of created for herself. What's up, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and welcome to episode 24 of Be More Well. Joining me this week is author Matt Haig. Thank you guys so much for taking some time out of your day to listen. Be More Well is a wellness-focused podcast that started after I found myself looking for inspiration and ways to get my mind and body on a better track. Each week, I have conversations with health professionals, educators, musicians, trainers, athletes, and most importantly, people that are just like you and I. My mission here is to bring you stories from people about how they found their path to wellness, as well as information and inspiration from experts in the field. Just like you, I'm working on becoming the best version of myself, and I hope that you're able to find some insight in these conversations. I think this is the first episode where I've had an author on to talk about a fiction book. I love novels, don't get me wrong. It's great to leave this world for a little bit and dive into the pages of a story, especially given the world that we're kind of living in right now. I don't know about you, but I definitely need a break here and there. But I've always believed the purpose of this podcast is to help share real-life examples of how to find wellness. Well, Matt Haig kind of covers both bases here. Not only is he an accomplished and highly regarded fiction author, he's also been a very big voice in the mental health community. Haig has been writing for a couple of decades now, but it was 2015 when he really broke through with his book, Reasons to Stay Alive. It's a memoir based on his own life experiences of living with depression and anxiety. Now, we're a little more open today to talking about mental health struggles, but five years ago, it was still a really taboo topic, especially for someone to write an entire book about it. But it was a huge hit. It stayed in the top 10 in the UK book charts for 46 weeks, which is pretty amazing. And that's really how I came to know who Matt Haig was. Prior to Reasons to Stay Alive, too, I don't think I'd ever read a book that was more open and honest than that. It really was mind-blowing to me. I first spoke with Matt when he published his next novel called How to Stop Time, and we caught up again in 2018 when he put out a collection of thoughts called Notes on a Nervous Planet. I always love talking with Matt Haig because he's just honest. Honesty is something that I crave in life, and it's not always easy to find, especially when you're talking to someone who's trying to promote something. But Matt is an open book with his struggles and his thoughts, and I just I love speaking with him for that reason. Haig has just released his latest book called The Midnight Library. It's getting rave reviews from everywhere, and I have to say that I loved it, so it's got my review as well. But even though it's a fiction novel, there are a lot of elements worked in from his personal mental health battles. It offers hope for people who are maybe struggling with their own battles right now. Before we dive into the conversation, don't forget to subscribe to Be More Well on whatever platform you're listening on right now, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, whatever. Subscribing will make sure that you're getting updated on new episodes of the podcast when they're available. And if you feel like leaving a rating and review, I'd appreciate that as well. That's how the podcast powers that be recognize what shows are making an impact and which ones to push out to new listeners. And here's my conversation with Matt Haig. Hi, Jeff. Hey, how's it going, Matt? It's going all right. Yeah, sorry about that. No, I, was, okay. we were, I was trying to connect to another podcast and uh, yeah, I got the link. Uh, you know what? I, I'm sure there's a lot of that going on right now, especially with people <laughs> shifting the way they normally do things um, with these interviews. Yeah. I know for me, I never used to do uh, video interviews, but I found working from home, the audio quality from a video interview is so much better than a phone call. So that's why I've made oh, that yeah. switch. Yeah, no, it's true. Definitely. Especially when you've got your headphones in and all of that stuff. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
So how have you been, man? Um, yeah, okay, actually. It's, uh, yeah, I, um, it's my wife's birthday tomorrow and I was cooking a cake this morning. The cake went completely wrong. So I had a, I had a sort of like nervous breakdown in my kitchen this morning. But in, in terms of <laughs> life stuff, yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, obviously, the world is on fire and all of that. But, you know, uh, yeah, myself personally, yeah, it's, it's okay. I'm okay. You know, I think that's really all we can ask of people right now is just to make sure that they're okay personally, right? I mean, there's so yeah. many things going on that we'll take one step at a time. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Whereabouts are you, Jeff? You're Yeah, we're in Baltimore, Maryland, just north of D.C. Uh, on the East Coast. One of my favorite holidays ever when my parents, my parents, we didn't go abroad very much, but my, my mom was a teacher and um, there was this teacher's network, this international teacher's network where they used to sort of do house swaps. Mm. And we swapped, I can't remember which suburb, but um, we, we went to Baltimore we had lots of crabs and um ate lots of um good food and yeah no i, I remember it 1990 baltimore yeah what have you got just north of there is it annapolis uh annapolis is kind of to the east of it but yeah right outside I, yep yeah yeah um yeah, good, good, good summer memories. You know, it's funny when anyway, I first sorry. moved here. I moved to Baltimore about twelve years ago. When I first got here, um, I ran into a bunch of tourists from the UK, and they were all coming over because they wanted to see the locations from the TV show The Wire. I guess oh, The yeah. Wire had just yeah. kind of made its way over and was becoming a big hit. So they were like, "Oh, we got to yes. come check this out." And I'm like, "You really don't want to see where that was." <laughs> the, yeah. I, I imagine. I imagine. Wasn't it hairspray? It was hairspray? Hairspray, hairspray was. Uh, yep, that was Baltimore too. Yeah. Yeah, because it's John Waters, isn't yep. it? And you've got all that stuff. Yeah. I hear he lives yeah. not too far from me, but I still haven't seen him. Like I hear he shows up <laughs> in really random places, like at convenience stores at three in the morning. He'll just be in there getting a coffee, and we're like, "All right, there's John Waters." <laughs> One of these days, That's one a, of these days. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, a, a lot of things have changed over the last few months, but I got to ask you, what is something that you've really enjoyed about the shift that we've kind of all been forced into making? Well, I think you say it there, you know, about this shift. I think it's been like a life edit. It's been like this compulsory life edit. And and obviously there are things we miss. Sure. But there's been so much in terms of, I think in terms of how I work, um, but I don't miss because I, I don't live in London and in the UK, everything business wise centers and revolves around London because we're quite kind of a small country yet London is this massive world city. So if you're not in London, if you're in the UK, it's almost like you're nowhere because you're not in London. It's not like it's not like the US where you've got so many major cities. And um, I've enjoyed not having to get on trains to London. I've enjoyed not having to commute. I've enjoyed not having to have those sort of awkward face-to-face -face meetings. I, I like having um, meetings and doing this podcast um, in my socks, you know, and just in my living room. I like all that stuff. And um, I think I've had more time. I think that's what I value most about this year. I've actually had um, more time for myself and for my family and actual that quality time has increased um because so little bit's spent traveling or doing sort of um pointless things that I, I was doing before so i think i think it's that freeing up of time and it's sort of simplifying it's like um suddenly we're stripped back it's like like the acoustic version of life and um i've liked that aspect of it you know i'm a total hypochondriac so i I've, I've gone through all the sort of like worrying about myself worrying about my elderly relatives and all of that stuff but, um, and I, I wouldn't want to wish, you know, an, another year like 2020, but um, within that, you know, 
as with any kind of crisis situation, there's always some sort of opportunity and life. And I think that life edit aspect has been great. And I think some things will profoundly change, even like post COVID, you know, whatever happens with vaccines or whatever. I think afterwards, um, there will be a fundamental shift in how we work. I think it's almost equivalent to um, World War II, you know, uh, certainly in the UK. Um, and, and Europe after World War II, that was when, uh, I know it was just true in America too, I'm sure, that was when women started working more in the workplace and it was seen as, a, you know, more egalitarian. And that was because obviously all the men were away at war during World War II. I, I, and so the horrendous horror that was World War II actually throughout the late 40s, then into the 50s, led to some great sort of social um, changes and hopefully so similar good stuff can be carried out here. I think this, you know, working from home has lost all its sort of stigma mm -hmm. this year. And so many people have been doing it. We homeschool our kids as well. And homeschool is another thing that's got a lot of stigma attached to it. And so in our country, and I know in a lot of your country, you know, homeschooling suddenly became like everyone was doing it. Um, so I think those sort of things have, have a positive angle to it. So yeah, there's always, there's always hope to be found within it. And I feel like a, a kind of, even though it feels, certainly when you're on the internet, like the whole world is hating each other and politics is dividing us all, on ground level, on sort of street level, I, I feel this year has been a year where people have been coming a bit closer together in, in, in many ways. And like, for instance, I know my neighbor's names now. I didn't know who yeah. my neighbors were last year. And, and you know, I, I think it's so easy to get plugged into the sort of, hate engine of the internet and to, to sort of like you know find things to be instantly offended by and angry about and I, i'm i'm not above that i i get i do that i vent i rant online sometimes but you know a lot of life is happening away from that that's one side of life but there's a sort of deeper existential part of life and, and we still have the same reasons to be grateful that we always did in many ways so yeah, I'm trying to be a bit more mindful. Yeah, I hope that from a mental health aspect that a lot of people have had some time to really investigate what's working for them and what's not working for them. I know I know for me, shifting and working from home and spending more time with my family and really getting that opportunity to sort of reset almost in a way yes. has been great for me. It made me realize a lot of the things that I was doing that, A, I didn't need to do, and B, they were driving me crazy. So I was able yeah. to kind of you know limit that and eliminate those things from my life. And it's made a world of difference for me. And I'm hoping that a lot of other people have taken that same opportunity. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I think... I I think sometimes that in itself can be quite painful, isn't it? Because like if you've been making a few of the wrong decisions in life, you suddenly have this space to think about it. And it's like, oh, you know, I hate my job or I hate this or I hate that or, or me and my partner aren't getting on mm. or whatever it is. But I feel like we don't do enough of that. We don't do enough of that kind of stepping back and having those moments to contemplate where we're going in life and what we're doing in life. So this year's freed, freed that up. I don't I feel like, yeah, I'm valuing valuing time more i'm actually getting more disciplined with how i use the internet as well because obviously at the start of this coronavirus crisis like everyone i was sort of addicted to the news coverage um you know and american politics is still very addictive our, our situation in the uk with brexit that sucks you sure. in as well but i deliberately have a um i have sundays now where i just do not touch a computer or a phone I, I go out for a walk and I this this Sunday I had I was very proud I had from midnight to midnight I did not touch a screen That's or amazing. do anything and it just felt 
I mean, it's strange that that is a challenge, but it actually is a challenge nowadays to, to go through a whole day without um, doing that. It's almost like running a, a psychological marathon, but it's so rewarding when you do it because you just actually, oh, this is who I am. I'm existing without <laughs> having to interact or press like a hundred times on friends' Facebook. So, you know, to actually leave that email unanswered or that text message unanswered and just not feel guilty about it and just have that day. It, yeah, it was quite quite an empowering, empowering thing. So I'm going to do that. Scroll-free Sundays, I think, for me. For I like now. that. I'm glad you mentioned that, too. So just before we dive into the book here, I have one question about that, because I know you're, you're pretty outspoken about your beliefs on uh, social media, and I support that, and I uh, admire it. Uh, but, you know, you do get pushback from people. And I know for me yes. personally, I have a hard time reading comments just because I don't I don't know. I don't handle all of them very well. So I'm curious, how do you handle the negative comments that you get from people? What's the best way that keeps you sane while you're seeing these things? Well, I'll start this by saying I used to be absolutely terrible at this. I, I used to waste so many weekends, certainly with Twitter uh, and, and like taking it so personally and yeah. getting so and arguing with people in Texas I would never meet. And, you know, just it just arguing with people who don't even have a name on the internet, who probably aren't even people, you know, and just wasting so much time like that. And um, I don't think I'm necessarily the best at it now, but I, what I don't do is when I post something is I don't hang around yeah. looking for the responses. I think if, if you want to air an opinion, that's fine. And we, we, we all, all should occasionally possibly if we feel that way inclined. But uh, I think the danger is when we check everyone's liking our opinion or you know is anyone saying anything bad about you or you type in your own name or your twitter handle and see what people are saying all of that stuff super unhealthy and i i wouldn't say i've been above that in the past but i i don't do that stuff now i've turned off notifications um so yeah when i'm active on twitter it's because i'm wanting to be active on twitter yeah. rather than because i'm caught in a cycle that i i can't get out of but i mean you know as a um, Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma yeah. uh, um, is, is telling us at the moment, you know, these things are designed to be addictive. They are designed to make, play with our emotions. And we're just one individual that's up against this whole um, tech industry that's in our faces trying to exploit what we think of as our free will in, in this way. And so while we still have any kind of agency over these things, I think it is very good for our soul and very nourishing to actually step away from it when when we can. Well, let's shift gears and talk about this new book, which I think is great. And first of all, congratulations, because I just saw Good Morning America named it a book club pick of October, which is huge. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous and um, quite quite surreal uh, to be on uh, Good Morning America. I felt, I felt very pale yesterday because they had me on. <laughs> <laughs> and they got all the lights on my, my you. big yeah my my big pale british face and yeah it felt very awkward but no it's an absolute honor to be there and um yeah to make to make some sort of um impact in america is is, is lovely and I, and I know it's very it's such a big uh, market so it's very hard to sort of certainly as an author who's not american to actually make any inroads there so it's nice that i've got some sort of american readership there now and it's growing and people are liking my books and uh following me online and stuff so yeah it's all all good stuff and we'll see it's very early days for the midnight library because it was only published yesterday but um yeah i think things are going well <laughs> well I, I always like to let authors 
tell the story about the book instead of me trying to summarize it because I feel like you'll do a much better job. So can you just give us a little summary of what The Midnight Library is all about? Sure. Well, The Midnight Library of the title is a library between life and death where one woman, um, Nora Seed, the central protagonist, finds herself after doing something stupid. She makes an attempt on her own life um, because her life she felt was going nowhere. She was drowning in regret. She was depressed. Um, she, she, she felt like she could have lived better lives if she'd have done things differently. So now within The Midnight Library, she has the chance to try all her other life's lives sorry she could have lived and with the help of a librarian called Mrs Elm she um, gets to see if the grass really is greener on the other side if for instance she'd have carried on doing music and became a rock star if she'd have pursued a swimming career and become an Olympic swimmer if she had been a top scientist and become a glaciologist in the Arctic Circle if she had owned a vineyard in California or whatever all these other little dreams of you know being a perfect wife and mother and all these things she actually gets to live those um, lives those regrets free lives to see if she would have been any happier there or to, to give her a perspective on her own root existence and I've made it sound bleaker than it is I, I think it's an optimistic <laughs> book I tried to be optimistic but I feel like to, to give authentic optimism and hope to the world, you have to sort of acknowledge yeah. the, the bad place at the start. And I think that's a good challenge. Uh, well, certainly a challenge I like to put myself is to take a bleak situation or a bleak person or, a, you know, a condition like depression. And then within that, not by ignoring it, but within that, trying to find something... Um, good and hopeful about it i suppose it's a bit like your your starting question about you know what do you take from this sort of bleak year and how what what hopeful things and that's what i tried to do with the uh with nora's story i think you do a great job with that because i i feel like for far too long just writing about or talking about depression and anxiety uh to the point where someone may take their own life was just such a taboo yeah. topic and people were so afraid to touch it but there is a lot of good that can come from having that discussion and opening it up so i i appreciate how you've you haven't shied away from touching on those things in your books really since reasons to stay alive came out too a few years ago um yeah well that was a big moment for me i mean before I wrote a book called Reasons to Stay Alive, uh, the only people in the world I'd told uh, about my depression and panic disorder were people who had to know, like my partner and my parents. Beyond that, even my friends, you know, very few people knew about it. So I came out in quite a public way because that book became quite big here and it became number one bestseller. And I, it was the first time I'd ever had that experience. And then suddenly people knew who I was, but they knew about me solely as this mental sure. health person. So it was suddenly very exposing to be kind of just seen as sort of Mr. Depression and all of that. But um, yeah, even with that book, you know, my aim was to write a positive book, to write a book about depression that wasn't depressing. And um, it's kind of hard to do, but also it's relatively easy in some ways because uh, the story, certainly my story of depression and most stories of depression is also a story of recovery. So it depends how you structure it. You know, I always think start in the moment of crisis, start in that sort of, and then point all the arrows upwards. And for me, it's that, that idea of descent that can be very sort of triggering and worried. But actually, if you start at rock bottom and, and, and you're very honest about what rock bottom feels like, but then you actually give some hope i think that can be more powerful for having been honest about the dark side of things yeah and i think you see that with nora in the midnight library for sure because it kind of starts out at the rock bottom moment in the book and, yes. and even in the moments moving forward where things don't necessarily go the way she had hoped they would go there is still a little bit of hope or recovery as you put it um in what she learns from those experiences 
Yeah, exactly. It's about it's about the learning. So yes, even if the lesson in some of the lives is actually this life I thought would be perfect isn't so perfect. That's still a lesson. That's still useful, you know. And it's like, you know, you get out of the. I talk a lot about a maze. There's a maze metaphor that sort of runs through it. And um, you, you, if you if you hit a dead end in a maze, that's not a wasted knowledge. You know, you know that that is not the way out of the maze. So we, you, you learn through failure and you learn through the dead ends sometimes. And that's that's part of Nora's journey. She has to sort of find her way out of the maze that she's sort of created for herself um, psychologically. And yeah, so some of those lives are that. But I, I also wanted to make make it clear that some of the lives actually are quite good lives and um, that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with them. But it's about Nora working out what's, best for her herself sure. and it might not always be the thing that you know seems perfectly pleasant or you know anything else and actually sometimes lives that look slightly less than perfect may um be the lives we need to leave and actually in any life it doesn't matter if we're billionaires or rock stars or whatever any life contains degrees of sadness and vulnerability and uh, grief and all of those big things we haven't solved any of those issues we just we might live on different scales sometimes but you know there's no life that insulates us from those things those terrible things so we, we kind of uh, have to uh, reach a point of acceptance and within the book uh, it's this journey for Nora to reach that state of um, self-acceptance really so the midnight library is kind of a place in between life and death and we've seen other people tackle this idea of this between life and death area but I've never seen anybody do it using a library so why did your mind go in this direction um well I I I mean I love libraries I feel like a, a library kind of is a portal in itself I feel like there's a special something about the space of a library even more possibly than a bookstore because a library is a space that likes us um, for who we are rather than likes us for our wallets or likes us for what we're going to spend there you know it's almost like a secular church a space that we go to and we're running out of those kind of spaces yeah. and there is an entry point to other worlds as it is you know a library is kind of like it's got a, a degree of infinity to it and and that feeling of being a portal into sort of like thirty thousand different other lives by by you know that's a point about reading as well so when i had that idea of a library being a portal i was playing about with different ideas of what could be a portal or not i, I thought well well a library kind of already is one so mm. it'd be quite easy to sort of write realistically even though i'm being quite um abstract and um fantastical about a library being such a space how much of this book is autobiographical for you uh, well, quite quite a lot in terms of the um, mental health stuff. Um, not so much in terms of the things she specifically regrets. I suppose the only only life she um, gets to try out that I would also want to try out is the live uh, the one where she's a successful musician. Because I used to have piano lessons. I was quite good at piano up until the age of thirteen, fourteen, and then. Um, because of the kind of school I was at, because I was a teenage boy, I just thought it was suddenly super uncool to say on a Friday night I was going to Mrs. Peter's for my piano lesson. <laughs> and it just wasn't the thing um, to be doing. So I gave up piano and um, my son's learning piano now. And, uh, you know, I sort of I sort of wonder if I could have, 
you know, what that would have been like. You know, it's not like a super major regret I have. It's just like, it'd be interesting to see um, if I'd have stayed doing the piano, if I'd be, you know, uh, any good at it, I don't know. But um, yeah, beyond that, it was more about her sort of state of mind at the start. And the fact that she's a, a female protagonist in a weird way made it easier for me to be autobiographical because it so clearly wasn't me. Mm. It gave me that freedom to actually, you know, in terms of the universal mental health stuff. Um, to put a lot of me in there. Obviously, I had to recognize that she is a woman and should be treated differently because she's a woman and, and her experiences would be different and her expectations that people put on her would be slightly different too. But in, in a strange way, I think it was ended up being more autobiographical because she was clearly someone who wasn't me. So then it just made me feel completely free to write very sort of openly and honestly about all the mental health stuff. You know, there is a point in the book where I think it's a mother has to uh, call for her son to quit taking uh, music lessons in there. Is that sort of uh, your nod to yourself of leaving music lessons early? Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> definitely. It's true. It's true. Yes. And obviously Nora herself doesn't quit music lessons because she's a piano teacher, sure, yeah. but she she's still got that unfulfilled musical yeah. ambition of the band and all of that. So, yeah, that, that's definitely definitely me in there. Uh, well, uh, the Midnight Library is out now. It, it is a fantastic book, at least what I've read so far. I, I had I took on too much on my plate in the month of September. <laughs> too many great books came out, and I signed up for way too many interviews, so I haven't finished the book yet. But uh, like all of your other work, it is fantastic, and I'm really excited to to dive into this more um, once we wrap up. But I, I do have to ask you about another book that you wrote because I heard it's being turned into a movie, and that's the Christmas children's book that you have. Yeah, I wrote a book called A Boy Called Christmas, which is uh, basically Santa as a boy, Father Christmas as a boy. And um, yeah, it's it's been made. It's been made and it's going to be out um, in the US on net, in Netflix next year. Oh, and cool. that is, yeah, that was super surreal. Last year, going over to Prague where they filmed it and seeing the cast, it's got Maggie Smith, Kristen Wiig, uh, Sally oh, wow. Hawkins, uh, all kinds of people. I mean, the amazing unknown child actors who, who they've discovered who, who are brilliant uh, the, the main boy in it is a boy called Henry Lawful I think you know it's a definitely watch your space for him because he's just like brilliant and he's got this amazing like uh, intense face and um, he, yeah it's it, it was very weird as a writer to literally walk around a set of this elf village that had started off in your head well, it started off as a question my son asked me, you know, he said, was Santa ever a boy? And then I sort of went away and wrote my answer about sort of Santa as a boy. And um, yeah, that's happening next year. So that's super exciting and weird and yeah, great. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, great. Matt, I'm a big fan of yours. I appreciate you. what you've done with your writing. I appreciate what you've done for the mental health community and being so open and honest and shining a light on things that a lot of people uh, don't necessarily want to talk about. Um, but before we wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you if they want to follow along? Well, I'm uh, quite active, maybe even too active on <laughs> social media. So <laughs> Twitter and Instagram. I mean, I'm not so much a Facebook person these days, but if you want my calm side, I'd go to Instagram, Matt Z Haig, H-A-I-G on Instagram. Um, if you want to see me losing the plot and arguing with people I shouldn't be arguing with, that's Twitter. That's Matt Hagwood. <laughs> oh, Matt, it's a pleasure talking to you again, man. Take care. Cheers, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to chat with Matt Haig. Do yourself a favor and check out The Midnight Library. and Maybe you'll be inspired to read more of his work. I definitely suggest Reasons to Stay Alive and How to Stop Time as some of my other favorites. Thanks for checking out episode 24 of Be More Well. Don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast. And I'll check you guys again next week. Thank you.